0: This has been a sobering week for me. Chris, I think, was very concerned about me this week because I had this kind of down face. And um, I think it's this, as I've been going through Genesis, but also specifically looking at uh, chapter 11, I think I've had a mirror moment. You know, that moment when maybe you've been trying to lose a bit of weight or you've been working on a particular muscle group and you go to the mirror to go and see how far you've gotten and you go and you look and you go, "Ah, ah, I'm not as far as I thought I was. And um, I feel in some senses that that's what's happened as I've looked at this text. Because as we've gone through the book of Genesis, if you've been following with us for the last number of weeks, you will see that there is man and God creates him. And you can just imagine the wonder and the beauty and the enjoyment that God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit, and Jesus would have had in creating man and breathing life and and the plans and the future that they had for humanity. But we see time and time again how man kind of does their thing, does their thing, and then they fall horribly. And then God's got to come in and he's got to rescue and he's got to redeem the situation again. And again and again, this happens over. And I feel like this week I was looking at even my own life and some of the sin that's in me. And I think I was so, um, I was sobered. I was saying, man, I looked at the depth of the depravity of humanity, the depth of my heart. If you were to look inside, I think I would be so ashamed for anybody to know. And so working through that, but also knowing this is that our God is so gracious and kind, even as that last song that we sang we sang about, he's so gracious and he's so kind. Tim Keller has this saying, he says um, that through the gospel, you and I are more sinful and flawed than we would ever dare to imagine. See, so I think the problem is, is that we sometimes look around at the people around us, so we look at the guy at work and we go, well, at least I didn't embezzle funds like that I did, I can't be that bad. Or maybe I'm not like my neighbor who is heavy-handed with his family and his, his, uh, his wife and his kids. And we look and we think, actually, we're not so bad. But when we look around, we're comparing ourselves to sinful man instead of God who has this incredibly high standard. But he finishes off the saying like this. He says, through the gospel, you and I are more loved and accepted and forgiven more than we would dare imagine. We do not deserve it all of like three minutes. (laughs) You and I do not deserve it, but God is so gracious and so kind to us. What made it worse probably was the fact that I've got a reading plan and I've been reading the Israelites' journey and just the thing sometimes can get depressing over and over again. You're like, come on, Oaks, learn, learn. But you and I are just like the Israelites. Over and over again, we make these mistakes. And this morning, my trust is that actually we would realize the depth from which we are. The, the scriptures speak of that he, he lifted me up out of the miry clay. You and I have fallen from great heights. It's so good that we're aware of that, that actually we are a fallen people. But at the same time, we've got a, a God who's so gracious and so merciful and so kind to us. And so we pick up our story this morning, and it's a bit of a somber start. But good news is coming. We pick up our story this morning in Genesis 11, and I'm just going to read a few verses, explain, and then carry on. It says this. And so as I begin, as we've seen quite a number of times through the book of Genesis, there's quite a few different views and thoughts around this one language that the the writer speaks of. If you remember in chapter 10, it does allude to the fact that the people were already spread out, that they were scattered and and tongues had already been given. And so some scholars speak that chapter 11 actually came before chapter 10 in terms of the order of events. And we would know this is that sometimes uh, the Bible isn't chronologically going through like we read it. For example, the Israelite. If you uh, uh, follow their journey, uh, especially in One Kings, Two Kings, and in, in the books of Chronicles, you will see that the story starts and then it hops over to somebody else. It comes back to the book of Chronicles in David's time. It goes through to the Psalms, and so you can see that the the, the scriptures that we read are not chronic, chronologically put the way that they happened in their events. And so that's one chain of thoughts. Others say that chapter eleven actually elaborates or or enriches chapter ten. What we've seen through the book of Genesis is that sometimes God will give us a wide-angle lens. This is what is going on, and then sometimes He will narrow in on an individual or a certain family. Others have looked at that word language to be translated as lips, and there's a whole train of thought there. Sometimes our English language doesn't fully grasp or comprehend some of the Hebrew um, or the Greek words that it was written in, in its original text. Others still speak of genealogies that go before salvation stories. We would have seen that in Genesis 5. Genealogies and then salvation. Here we see genealogies and then salvations. Matthew 1, we see genealogies and Jesus coming in, the ultimate salvation. Now, I'm not going to particularly land anywhere. You can take that as you please and journey a little bit. But all of it to say this is that God's word has come to, uh, to Adam and has been repeated to Noah. They were to be fruitful, they were to multiply, and they were to fill the earth. There was no mention of a globalization. People all coming together, and we're all just going to stay like this happy family. There was no mention of that. There was no mention of building ourselves a monument, something that would reach to the heavens, as if man, by his own means or his own way, can reach to the heavens. There was no mention of that. There was no mention of come, let us make ourselves a name, let us uh, let, let us make ourselves known to those that are around us. None of that is mentioned. The directive from God was clear, but on the other hand, they started having these community meetings. I didn't realize this. I was prepping yesterday, and Judy asked, what can we pray for? And I said, actually, pray that God's word would come, whatever the church needs to hear. And I don't know why I've added this in, and I trust God will work. But sometimes in churches, you see people having these little community meetings. They're disgruntled about something, not happy because the deacon or life group member challenged them about sin in their lives or whatever the story is. And so they're disgruntled, and they're unhappy with something, and then they'll gather some others and say, come, let's have a disgruntled meeting together. Red Point, can I encourage us that we are not those people? Because as you can see how the story will end is that it does not end well for these people. These little communities that are conspiring, breaking and bringing division, which God hates. Tim Keller says this. He says, God's desire is that we be a people that look outward to multiply. We look to serving, to send and to give. But sinful man always looks inward towards building for their security and their glory. Right now, John and the team of guys will go to Telem, is it, um, to go and celebrate a church. I don't know how much money they've put into that actual physical building. I know there's many churches, both Dave and Rob, have helped to build. Why? Because we are a people that are looking outward. We're not looking to ourselves. We're not looking to enhance ourselves. Yes, it's good to gather, but then what we do is we want to go out. We want to go out carrying the word and the gospel that Jesus has given us. I said this to our muses the other day. Whenever I'm invited into specific spaces and there's conversations going on, I'm always lending an ear saying, God, what can we do for these people? How can we bless them? From a muso perspective, I'm going, can we come in? Can we do some training? Not that we have all the answers, but I know this, is that in the very heart and fabric of Red Point Church, the the gift of worship was given. It wasn't given just for us. It was given so that we would help others along their journey. Right now, Nick and Katty are in the States, and they're with the Genesis Collective. It's just a group of churches that gather together to take the gospel out to places where the gospel has been lost, ignored, or forgotten. And so he was sitting and he was wrestling, saying, should I go? Shouldn't I go? He sits on the team. And so there is some responsibility and the need for him. His gift is definitely needed in that context. But he was wrestling. It was really expensive. And Nick loves this community. He loves being here. He loves seeing you, shaking hands and discussing with you. And he came in the one morning and he says, okay, It's almost like faith settled inside. He says, I'm going to go, but not for my sake. I'm going for Red Point's sake. And what leaders do is that they will walk into spaces. They will go and pioneer places in order that those that follow will come through. Red Point Church is a church that is giving. If you are part of Red Point, can I ask you to get behind that? That we're a church that is always looking out, like Tim Keller says, not just looking to get benefits for ourselves. Their desire to bring themselves out from under the rule of God and be their own rulers. They want to govern themselves. They want to be independent and work autonomously from God. They think they can be self-sufficient. And I've said this before from this pulpit, is that you and I, as disciples and followers of Jesus, ours is to bring our lives under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And if that is the case, it means I bring my finances under his rule and his reign. He's the one that gets to dictate what I do with my money. If you're a parent in this room, I trust that as a disciple and follower of Jesus, you're raising your kids the way that God has commanded you and the scriptures tell us to. You're not looking to culture. You're not looking to Mr. and Mrs. Jones down the road and finding out, okay, how are they doing? Okay, I want to apply the same rules. No, 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 because you and I are not our own. We've been bought with a price. And so when our lives are under his rule and his reign, everything, our time, everything that we have, our resources, vehicles, and homes are all for the purpose of his kingdom. We bring our lives under his rule and his reign. Instead, these people want to build a city. They want to build a civilization that is void of the rule of God. In other words, there's humanism that's taking place. Humanism is man seeking to replace God so that they can define their life and their meaning and their purpose. They don't want God to tell them what to do. They don't want God to direct them. They want to be the directors of their own lives. They want to build a tower um, What's his name? Louis. can you just show the picture in the, uh, quickly? So there's a bit of conjecture backwards and forwards, but some scholars believe that the tower would have been that, which is a ziggurat. That's what they call it. I trust that the name is right. And so it isn't actually a very high building. It's not very tall. And some scholars believe that right on top would have been a place of worship. And so they go on to speak about how they were t- wanting to move away from the worship of God and to worship themselves or worship others. Thanks, Louie. It's what they were trying to do, almost as if they, by their own bootstraps or by their own will or by their own way, can make their way to Jesus or make their way to God, which we know they cannot do. They want to make for themselves a name. They wanted homocracy instead of theocracy. Homocracy is when we decide that we want a person to rule instead of God. Theocracy. You only need to read the story of the Israelites, and and, uh, they had settled down, and they're busy looking at the pagan nations that are around them, and they start to take on their habits and their traits. And so they say, God, we actually don't want your rule. What we want to do is we want to put a king in place. And God says no, because he's merciful and gracious. He's saying, no, that's not what you want. And they say, God, this is what we want. Eventually, God says, okay, I'll give you what you want. God does that at times. But then we see the disaster that follows. We've got some good kings and a whole lot of bad kings. I mean, it gets so bad that it says of some of those kings that they were doing worse things than the pagan nations than, God had, than those that God had driven out of Canaan. Some of them were offering their sons and their daughters as sacrifices to please this God. God is going, that's not the way. The idea was that I would be your God. The idea is that you would look to me. You would find your fullness and your wholeness and your purpose in me. But now you want to look around to those around you and you want somebody else to rule over you. That's not the way that I had intended it. They don't want to be dispersed over the earth. The city and the tower are an outward expression of the sin of making a name for themselves and not wanting to be dispersed. John Piper makes this comment. He says there's two sins that are being committed here. The first is the sin that so many of us are familiar with, and that is the love of human praise. We love human praise. Human praise gets us into trouble so many times. Nobody wants to be canceled in this culture. You say the wrong thing and all of a sudden nobody wants to listen to you. Nobody wants to follow you. Everybody just leaves you. They almost cancel you. Nobody wants to be in that place. Why? Because you and I love to be praised facebook and instagram and all of those things sometimes i have a bit of a laugh i mean i use it to you know i use it as an album really to store photos and all that sort of stuff but you know sometimes you'll see people doing really good things but they're all like snapping and, and doing what they're doing hashtag this hashtag giving to the poor and so there's something that's innate that's in us as humanity that says man i love to receive praise i want to do something in order that people would praise me red point church you and i were never meant to receive praise Praise will kill us. Praise will cripple us. And we see it happening all the time. What we learn, praise was meant for God and for God alone. The second sin that he uh, speaks of is the sin of security. I've heard this reason so many times. I want job security. I want family security. I want future security. Do you and I trust that God will look after our families, our jobs, and our futures? Is that our belief as believers of Jesus, as disciples? Do we look to the word and say, the word tells me that Jesus and that God will look after my family, will look after my future? I've heard so many people say, well, there's no future for my kids in this country. There's no future for my job in this country. I must leave. And I've got nothing against people that immigrate. I really don't. If it is of God and you've worked it through with your leaders, then please do what God has called you to do. But so often, these are the excuses that I hear in this day and age as if to say it's this nation that holds your kids' futures in their hands. We remove God from being God and we say, well, the nation or the people or this party are the ones that will dictate. Actually, they do not. God is the one that dictates. Does not Scripture say that He's the one that holds everything together? He's the one that sustains life itself. He's the one, I mean, you might have amazing plans for your kids, bless you, but your plans are puny compared to what God has got for your kids. Will we... Bring our kids under his rule. Actually, let's not leave. Let's not move. I'd rather be in the place where God has called me to be, even though it is hostile, because I know he is the one that will provide. I know he is the one that will keep me. And if I must die, that's okay, because then I get to be with him. We bring our lives under his rule and his reign. What they want to do is they want to build a civilization that will erase the creator, created distinction. They say, we don't want you, God. We want to be God. We want to take your role. We want to swap roles. We don't want to be dictated to. We want to do the dictating. We're going to remove the divine oversight and mandate. Instead, we will set the rules as to how civilization, how government, how culture will operate. They want to choose their own identity, which is not what God has got for them. I remember when I was a teenager, the sins are coming out now. Yo, yo, yo. I'll come back to that. But teenagers, teenagers, they get to an age where they think they know a lot of stuff. They haven't been living for long, but they think they know a lot of stuff. And then there's sometimes a bit of attention tension and a struggle. The parents are looking around going, yeah, I hope you're listening. I know you are. Oh, Mervyn, who's laughing so loudly there? Merv, what's going on? And, um, and so sometimes there's even this wrestle that happens in the homes. Because the teenagers now want independence. They want to call the shots. They don't want to be told what to do. They want to tell you what to do. The problem with their independence is that it comes with broke status. They don't have money to do anything. They don't have money to contribute food or clothes or even fill up the car. I must say to my absolute shame and horror, when uh, I was still living at home with my mom, she uh, gave me the privilege of using her own car. And um, at times, I knew what the curfew was, but I wanted to push that curfew a little bit. And then my mom would stay awake until I got home, and then stuff happened. And so that's what happens in our lives, is that we want to be independent of God, but our dependence is still on Him. That's what we find with these people. We look around at the world, we read the papers, and we see the decay of the very world around us. Why? Because of the illegitimate freedom that the world promises, but it cannot deliver. Because the world says, if we do this, the world says, if this person's in power, the world says, if this party or this policy, if we do A, B, and C, then the world will be better. It won't be. We just have to read through history and we see that is not the case. They want to self-govern. They want to make their own decisions. They want to define things in their own terms. And unfortunately now, we've had generations and kids in those generations that are confused about who they are. Why? Because we want to usurp. We want to take the authority that God has given and we want to do our own thing. Right now in America, just before I came back in May, I think it was, I was was talking to a pastor and he was saying at the moment in their public schools, basically if a child has got questions about its sexuality, can go to the teacher, can say, I want to go see a counselor. The counselor can say whatever the heck the counselor wants to say and the parent is not even aware what's going on. There is a mass mass exodus out of uh, public schools, Christians and non-Christians alike, into, funny enough, Christian schools. Non-believers are taking their kids to believing schools, which I wonder, is that the hand of God in that? All is that to say is this, is that actually when you and I think that we can rule, this is uh, what happens. A generation of kids who are sometimes lost. Why? Let us, let us, let us. We want to build. We want to make a way. We want to dictate how we live. What they don't realize is that the very autonomy that they seek still needs God. Their ability to make whatever it is they want to make still relies on God. Their intellect to do it. All of the materials that they will use are God's given materials in order to make the thing that they want to make. They still are in need of God. Aren't you and I the same? We take the things, the blessings. Sometimes people will come into church, their marriages get restored, and they tune, thanks God, thank you so much, and they're hightailed out of there. Or maybe a business that's really battling and there's prayers and prayers and prayers. And then once everything comes right and finances are in there, they go take their finances and they they, they leave the body and they do whatever it is that they want to do. Don't you and I do exactly the same things? Taking the very elements that God has created for our own good. Anyway, let's carry on. Verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Again, just in studying, they say that the Hebrew word here it actually means investigate, the way that the, the sentence is constructed. It's investigate, but not investigation for information, like we need to investigate how this person died, and so this is what we need to do. God already knows. God is omniscient, meaning he knows all things. There's nothing that catches him of God. He doesn't wake up one morning and go, sheesh, I didn't see that coming, because he knows everything. And so that is not the reason that why God comes down. Yet he does come down into their situation. And this is the crux of my message, that he comes into yours and into my mess to intervene physically. He doesn't just sit up there. He could have. But he comes down to see what is going on. Why? Because he cares and is moved with compassion. In the New Testament, we see Jesus sitting with his Father, sitting with the Holy Spirit. And the earth again is a mess. Man has tried over and over again. But Jesus comes down, he confines himself, the one that has created the whole earth, the one in whom life and existence exists within him. He's the one that comes, he confines himself in the body of a man. He gets tired now, he's like, it's probably a new thing. He's like, I've never been tired, I now need sleep. As a young child, he would have probably had to have been fed and changed. He probably would have had a curfew, I would imagine. And so he comes and he confines himself, why? Because Jesus is interested in who we are, and he will come down but in himself come down to where we are. And this morning, I don't know where you are. You might be bogged down by a whole lot of stresses in the world. And I want to say that God the Father wants to graciously come down and meet with you this morning. As John spoke about that gift, you might not even be expecting it, but God in himself wants to come down and meet with you this morning and show mercy and show grace to you. I don't know why God didn't just speak. They've just created the world. He's just spoken, and all of these things have happened. I don't know why he didn't come down in himself. I'm going to hazard a guess, but please, this is not the, saith the Lord. In Genesis 1, we see that God delegates the rule of humanity or man or the earth. He delegates it to Adam and Eve. And he says, we are giving you the responsibility. You guys make the decisions. Name the animal. Make the rules. Do whatever you need to do. And God, in a sense, gives it over to them for good or for bad. And we see that it doesn't take long before Adam comes. Adam and Eve come and they do bad things. And so God gives the rule over to them, not putting parameters whether it's good or bad. But in a sense, as the conversation is going on there, they can see that if they become unified, if they, become, uh, they start to rule independently of us, as far as earth is concerned, they will be unstoppable in their rebellion and the damage that they can do. That is God's mercy and grace to you and I. He looks down, he says, this is not good. He looks a little ways down into the future, says, this is not good for mankind. And so I will come in in the person and intervene in their situation. It is the same for you and I, because God is gracious, because God is kind, because God is loving towards us. He comes into the mess. He comes into where we are. Verse six and seven. And the Lord said, behold, there are one people, and they have all one language. This is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they, uh, uh, nothing that they purpose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. See that there is massive uh, power in unity. Unity is very effective. We've seen how, how it can be effective for the wrong things, or will it be effective for the right things, the things that God has called us to do. A united people have a great potential for achieving their hopes and their goals. And so God comes down, and in a sense, he restrains them. I don't know if it was Michael Franco that spoke about Adam and Eve being put out of the garden because of God's grace and his love. He restrains them because they might have done more damage if they'd remained in the garden. It's exactly the same thing here. God restrains their unity because he can see that it is for evil purposes. This is God's grace and mercy intersecting man's rebellion. Isn't that true for some of us that are here this morning? Sometimes we're not even looking for God. I love that text. It says, whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so some of us were living our lives, doing our own things, and Christ intersected us. All of a sudden, there was that mirror to show us who we really are and the need that we have for Jesus and his saving plan. Their language was the thing that God had to come down and break because there is power in language. God recognized that from the beginning. Language could either be used by them uh, to elevate their status, to make a name for themselves, or it could be used to make a name for Christ. It could be used to make a name for God. And this it was for self-glorification, and so God had to put an end to it. But language is a very powerful thing. We see it in the beginning. If we just take a little journey in between the Old and the New Testament, there's these 400 silent years, people say. But we know this is that God is always at work, even though it might seem that he's not. And there's a few things that happen in these 400 silent years. Two of the things that happen is the Greeks come into power, and what they do is they give the people a common language. So now they know their native language, and now they've learned some Greek in some way, shape, or form. The other thing is that the Romans come into power not so long after, and what they do is they give infrastructure. They build roads because their their empire is growing, and so they need to oversee all of this, and so they build roads. We journey all the way through to the book of Acts. And we see there that devoted men from every nation now coming together. So in the Tower of Babel, we see God dispersing all of the languages. Why? Because they wanted to build themselves a name. But now in the book of Acts, we see all the languages coming back from the devoted men that were gathered. They come back together. Why? Because it was to bring God glory and it was to bring Him praise. People are hearing the disciples speaking their own native languages. They're wild. They're amazed. Some make fun and jeer them. But the gospel is preached. People are saved. And the gospel goes out using the roads and the language that was given at the time. So God is always at work. Languages are a powerful agent and tool for the spread of the gospel. Verse 8 and 9. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because, uh, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is now the fourth time that God has had to come down. He's had to judge and preserve, judge and preserve. First, we see it in the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve have fallen into sin. The judgment there is against the serpent, the ground and them. But God is gracious in that he makes garments for them. I think Mikey spoke of this. They try to cover up their nakedness. They try to cover up their sin. But God is gracious and comes down and he makes coverings for them. And he allows them to carry on living outside of the garden. That's God's grace and hope through these people. We see Cain's sin of murder and God's judgment on Cain is that you would become a fugitive. But God's grace is that he puts his mark of protection on Cain. God's not done with him. Next, we see the wickedness of all mankind. I I can't even imagine that the thoughts of mankind was wickedness all of the time. Every single day, every individual was thinking wicked thoughts. And we see God's kindness in that he gets a flood to wipe out humanity and start again. But his grace is that he takes Noah and his family and he shuts them up into the ark, a picture of salvation. He gives them a promise of a new creation and a new beginning. The covenant was sealed with the rainbow of hope once again, as Chris spoke of last week. And finally, the Tower of Babel, man trying to make their way to God, man trying to be autonomous and rule over themselves. But God's grace to humanity is that he comes down in his very person into their mess in order to disperse the languages. At the end of verse 9, we see God's original intent coming to pass. This is what God had wanted for them, is that they would be dispersed over the known world. I remember Sean Dooley, who was the guy that handed leadership of this church to Nick. He was here a few months ago because his mom had passed away. And he once said this in a preach, is that you have one of two choices. You will either buy your knee to Jesus now, or you will eventually buy your knee to Jesus. Scripture says every nation, every tribe, every tongue, that's what the Scriptures teach us. And so sometimes we have to go this way and that way and veer, but God's will will always come to pass God gives, us, God gives you and I the ways that we are to conduct our lives. We, his people, think we can sometimes do it better or independently from him. Sin leads to punishment. The result of sin becomes clear to us. And then comes the word of divine grace. So that in the punishment, there is also restraint and preservation. And finally, as we see in this story, we see the beginning of hope and the seed that we've spoken from the beginning the seed through whom we speak of Abram, the seed through whom it's his descendant that will crush the head of Satan. That's what the scripture tells us. The next section goes through Shem's descendants, which I won't touch on now, but I want to come right down to the end. Verse 31, it says this, Terah took Abram his son and lost the son of Haran his grandson, and Sarah his daughter-in-law his son, Abram's wife, and they went forth together from the Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there, the word that came this morning. They settled there. The days of terror were 205 years, and terror died in Haran. As chapter 11 ends, we seem to be left disintegrated, scattered, separated, and confused. But the writer now starts as actually a new story that's about to unfold. A new story that's about to begin. God's redemptive plan is about to start in the person of Abraham. I want to just read this short insert as I come to land. I know maybe you and the band can come down. The chapter concludes like this Now, the primeval story has ended. The account of the people of God in history a salvation story ultimately centered in Christ, can now begin through the person of Abraham. From now, God begins to reverse the judgment of Babel. A new community is being built as the family of Abraham. Through Abraham, we are told all the families of the earth will again receive their blessing. The promise that was given first will now start to be fulfilled through Abraham. Through Abraham, the covenant story Of sacred history begins. Can I ask us to stand? I thought of two responses for us this morning. There might be more, but these are the two things that I really felt as I was preparing. The one is maybe you as a family, you as an individual, have actually brought your life out from under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. And this morning, maybe you need to respond to him and apologize and say, Lord, I'm so sorry that I've taken things into my own hand. I've tried to be the ruler of my own world. I've tried to make my own decisions independent of you. What I want to do is I want to bring my life. I want to bring all that I am, all that is in my world and in my scope. I want to bring that under your rule and reign. And the second thing is for those maybe this morning, as as has happened to me this week, often the, the word, as you begin to prepare, is doing a lot of work in you. And maybe you've got a, a moment where you're looking in the mirror and you're going, man, I can see the heights the, the from which I've fallen, the depravity of my own humanity. But I do not stay there. I know that there is a God who loves me and who cares for me and is extending his love and his grace and his mercy to me this morning. And so even as we sing these two songs, I wonder if we can respond in that way. Lord, we want to apologize for thinking we can rule and reign outside of you. Actually, I know that I am so broken. I know that I'm actually, like the sin that's within me is a terrible thing. But I know that you are gracious and loving and kind to me. Thank